Imagine how the medieval cathedral you're visiting would have looked to the people who lived there when it was built. The people in those days would have lived in little one-story wooden shacks, and they'd arrive and see a site like that, and it was like a preview to heaven. We're exploring the Gothic churches of England in the hour ahead. What's for lunch? Try the cuisine of Slovenia to find out how the crossroads of the Slavic, Latin, Turkish, and Germanic worlds can produce some tasty results. There's quite a bit of pasta, fish, salad, slightly Mediterranean dishes. They're also known for the medicinal qualities of their herbal brandies. And we like to say with everything that grows, all the flowers, all the herbs, just dip them into schnapps. And learn how every day is Earth Day in the capital of Norway. Oslo actually has become like the electrical vehicle capital of the world. Come with us from the green capital of Europe to the sacred space of an English cathedral on today's Travel with Rick Steves. You don't need a car to get around in Oslo. In fact, there are a number of reasons you don't even want a car to get around in Oslo. We'll hear how the city earned its reputation as the down-to-earth green capital of Europe in just a moment. We'll also get you ready to visit some of England's impressive cathedrals and hear how variety is the spice of Slovenia as we learn about its multifaceted food traditions. That's all in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Oslo, it's a small capital, just about 600,000 people, of a big but sparsely populated country. As a matter of fact, it's as far from Oslo to the north end of Norway as it is from Oslo to Rome. But only 5 million people live in the country. Norwegians are famously close to nature, and they're leaders in caring for the environment. And we're joined now by a proud Norwegian to learn more. Paul Johansson was born and raised in Oslo. He's a computer engineer, made his own startup company, and decided, you know, he just likes to show people around his beautiful country. And he's been a guide for many years. And Paul joins us now to tell us what's going on in Oslo. Paul, thanks for being here. Thanks, Rick. So tell us about where you live and just personally how environmental concerns would be part of the life of a young Norwegian. Yeah. So I live in in Oslo and I live in uh, not downtown, but pretty close to downtown. I can easily walk to downtown if I like. And uh, I said walk. Because you we, emphasized walk. Yeah, it was because, underlined in bold. that's basically how I get around. Right. Um, I don't have a car. I never owned a car. Most of my friends don't have cars. Do you have um, a public transit pass? Uh, yes, I do. So I, you, you know when the tram's going and you can yeah. just hop on. You don't, you don't really have to look at any schedule. You go, I go to my closest tram stop or bus stop, and I know there will be a bus or a tram coming in about seven, eight minutes maximum. So in Oslo, of course, you may have environmental concerns and celebrate not having a car, but it's also a practical thing. It's expensive to have a car. It's cheaper to use the government-subsidized public transit. You have a special pass that encourages people to use it freely. It's also expensive to have uh, cars because the local government has made it very expensive to have a car. Well, this is what we're going to talk about here is this green approach. And and a green, friendly society doesn't just happen. It takes, uh, I guess, a a populace to elect a government that Mm -hmm. then wants to take leadership in this. Mm -hmm. And Oslo was recently awarded the European Green Capital. Yes, we were, and we are super excited about that. Uh, So this for 2019, Oslo is the green capital capital of of Europe. Europe, yeah. So what were the problems, and why would the people who made this award be so impressed by Oslo? So first, I just want to point out how important this award is. Uh, It started back in 2010, and it's a award that has become increasingly more important because today, more than half of the world population, they live in cities which means that if we can have our cities to be environmentally friendly, 
it will make a big effort for the planet. Um, Very basically. smart. Yeah. yeah. So um, traffic has always been the big problem in Oslo, especially in the winter when it's cold and and you don't have a lot of air circulation. The air stands still. Mm-hmm. Um, so on certain days during the winter, if you have asthma or breathing problems and so on, you basically can't go in out. Oslo. In I didn't Oslo, know that. you yeah. wouldn't think that, but. No. That's how bad it is. But so that's been changed now. That is changing. For right. example, last year, uh, on certain days during the winter when there was too much pollution in the air, right. the local government said that if you have a diesel car, you're not allowed to drive today. Okay. So that's one that's measure. That's pretty dramatic, yeah. Yeah. Other measures that we have taken is um, to build new tunnels. 20 years ago, all the traffic went through the city. Yep. Now we have tunnels that goes under the city and under the fjord uh, as Now well. that's interesting because I've been going to Oslo since I was a kid, and mm-hmm. the harbor front, it used to be a noisy traffic mess. And yeah. now it feels like a pedestrian-friendly park. And you kind of wonder, where are all the traffic? I mean, this is a big city, 600,000 people. People got to get to work. It's underground. Yeah. It's silent. Yeah. Is there a fee? In London, they have a congestion fee when a car comes into the center. Is there anything like that in Norway? We have road tolls. So Uh whenever you go drive into Oslo, and now also when you drive out of Oslo, you have to pay a road toll. There is an exception, though. That is if you own an electrical car. Is then that you don't, right? You don't so pay this is, road tolls. This yeah. is a tough love from a government that wants a green future. <laughs> it is. So you can you can potentially save a lot of money during a year. And Oslo actually has become like the um, electrical vehicle um, capital of the world. I've heard that Tesla, mm-hmm. green car that's quite expensive. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the best-selling cars in Norway. It is. It's actually um, the most selling place in the world is in Norway after California. What would be an incentive for a Norwegian to buy a Tesla? Uh, so there, there are two reasons uh, here. Of course, Norwegians have um, you know good economy, so mm-hmm. they can afford to buy a Tesla. But a Tesla is actually considered an affordable car in Norway. And that's because there are no taxes on electrical uh, cars. No taxes on electrical cars? No taxes. You don't pay road tolls. Uh, you can drive in the in the public transit um, lanes. You can sort of skip the line on on way to work, and there's a lot of places where you can charge it, and uh, it's just very convenient to own a yeah. An electric I, I'll car. never forget. I was standing in Bergen, and it was like this Tesla drove by, and it was like <laughs> yeah. there's no cars here. What's this Tesla doing? And my friend, oh no, Teslas own the road. If you yeah. have a Tesla, yeah. you can go anywhere, you can park anywhere, yeah, you yeah, get yeah, subsidies yeah. on this, yeah. and with the high taxes in Norway and so on, when all the dust settles, a Tesla is no more expensive than a Honda. Maybe a little bit, <laughs> a little <laughs> but, bit. but still. But it's still affordable. Still is an affordable It's an uh, affordable car. car. An affordable well, car. that's leadership from your society's point yeah. of view. What is Norway doing from a technology point of view to combat climate change? So there, there's one big uh, technology, which uh, actually, unfortunately, it's still quite unknown to the world in general, but uh, it's something that we invented about 10 years ago, and um, it's about cleaning carbon dioxide out of uh, emissions from cars, for example. Mm-hmm. So we had a prime minister 10 years ago, and he said, this is a famous quote, that this is our moon landing. This, so a big initiative. This is how this. big, and there's been a prestige project, they spent billions of kroner on it. Mm-hmm. And I can give you an example how this um, works. So we have a, a tunnel in Oslo, it's called the Opera Tunnel. If you go to Oslo, you will see um, just by the Opera, there's two big chimneys coming up. Mm-hmm. So all the emissions, car emissions coming um, you know, from that tunnel, they go through the chimney. But before they go through the chimney, they pass through a liquid. It's um, a chemical that captures all the CO2, so all the bad stuff. And then they take that liquid and they boil it so it becomes a gas. 
and they take the gas and put it on big um, tank ships, and then they transport that gas up into the North Sea and pump it down into empty oil wells. Uh-huh. And then the sea works as a sort of a normal lid. And then after a certain amount of years, this gas turns into rock. This is a radical new technology it that is. could be hopeful for helping mitigate a lot of problems caused by fossil fuel. Yeah, and you can also use it on, on waste-burning plants, for example. Uh-huh. You know, you put this technology in the chimney and you remove the CO2. So, Norway is a tiny country. You know, if Oslo does everything perfectly, it, it hardly registers on a global scale. But yeah. you can inspire other countries yeah. that are bigger contributors to climate yeah. change. Is, is there a sense of that in Norway, that you're leaders in that regard? There is, certainly is. And uh, that's also a big part of this award that we got, that you, you're sort of supposed to be like a role model here. You know, you're right. a role model for other European cities and for other cities around the world. No, but that takes taxation. I mean, somebody's got to pay for all these tunnels and all of this technology yeah. and so on. And you guys are already highly taxed because you include in general citizenship uh, education and health care mm-hmm. and a good solid retirement and mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you don't even have pledge drives. You have public broadcasting <laughs> yeah. without pledge drives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, why do people willingly pay for this? So, Is there uh, a gun in their back to, to do this? <laughs> no, not at all. So uh, Norwegians are, by default, we are very uh, environmentally friendly people. You know, we like the outdoors. Yeah. And um, so it's very easy for politicians to, to implement new policies that has to do with, you know, improving yeah. um, the environment. And also people now are, you know, they're becoming, you know, more and more aware about this and um, are voting for parties. So this is that, honesty, really, to, yeah. to recognize we have an impact on the environment. Our children are going to pay for this if, yeah. if we are dishonest. Yeah. And we're doing it now. Yeah. It's not yeah. a right wing or a left wing thing. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, we love to go skiing, mm-hmm. and we have been witnessing the last ten years that there's less snow in right. around Oslo yeah. in, in the winter, and so that's a dramatic impact. Is there a discussion in Norway about is climate change real? There's, there's like there's one party, right wing party, that mm-hmm. uh, well, where you know half of the party mm-hmm. sort of dubs the whole theory, but uh, it's not a big discussion at mm-hmm. all. No. Our guest, Paul Johansson, is explaining how his city earned the title of Green Capital of Europe for 2019 through its initiatives to reduce carbon emissions and protect the land and waterways around the city. It's the greening of Oslo right now on Travel with Rick Steves. And just that Europe would have a green capital Mm -hmm. is pretty interesting. Is that an EU thing? That is an EU thing. So it's a European um, commission who decided on this. Back in 2008, and then the first capital was actually Stockholm, was elected in 2010. What do you call people who live in Oslo? Are they Oslowegians or what? Um, it's like um, Oslo livers in a way, Li- like living. Os- living. Oslo, I don't people know how to say it. Oslo bor. Oslo bor. Oslo bor. I've never encountered that. It's just. Boer is like, it's like living. Okay. Yeah. Oslo bor. Well, as a Oslo bor. How are you personally impacted by your environmental sensibilities? Well, I think uh, we are very into recycling, uh, mm-hmm. for example. You know, everything has to go into the right uh, bin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also just the way that you sort of transport yourself around in the city. It's mostly in a very environmentally friendly way. Take the tram or the bus or, mm-hmm. or you just walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or you bicycle. There's a bicycle lanes everywhere, so it's it's really the best way of of getting around is to do public transport or or just bike and um, and walk. 
Is there an initiative to clean up the fjords? How are the fjords doing from a health point of view? Because a lot of shipping comes and goes. And yeah. I'm sure that's a concern. So 10 years ago, you couldn't really jump out into the fjord anywhere uh, because there were it wasn't really clean. Is that uh, right? Yeah, okay. but now it's been cleaned up and you can swim pretty much anywhere. Because there's the big new development, Akkabrukka, Akkabrukka. right in downtown Oslo. I mean, it is right in the middle of the city. Yeah. It's all this open wood and wonderful modern condominium living yeah, yeah, with yeah. great restaurants at the ground floor and everybody yeah. living up stairs and you walk this promenade it must be a, a kilometer long and at the very end well you will have uh, in the summer a bunch of um, both adults and kids and they're just jumping into the water this is oslo this is green oslo mm-hmm. this is a citizenry that knows that it has uh, a stewardship responsibility yeah. for the future yeah and even in a small country like norway you're making a difference Paul Johansson from Oslo, thanks for joining us and thanks for inspiring us that we all need to uh, wake up when it comes to making sure this world's a good place for coming generations. Tusen takk for a green future. How do we say that in Norwegian? Tusen takk for en grønn framtid. Tusen takk for en grønn framtid. Yeah, very good. Pal explains how political coalitions work to govern Oslo and why he takes pride in being billed for Norway's public broadcasting services. That's in an extra to today's show, and you can hear it at ricksteves.com radio. Celebrate Easter in the grand cathedrals of England and enjoy a Slovenian feast. That's still to come on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877-333-7425. He told me it was the most glorious sight people had ever seen. The deacon at Wells Cathedral in Somerset in England once explained to me that the towering facade on England's first entirely Gothic cathedral would have been the definition of jaw-dropping back when it opened around the year 1200. A Sunday morning would have included a brassy call from trumpets playing through openings in the ornate facade. I can just imagine parishioners dressing up in their finest, inspired by the brightly painted statues of the saints. Tour guides Roy Nichols and Jillian Chadwick join us now to take your calls at 877-333-7425 as we explore the impressive historic cathedrals that you can visit today all over England. Jillian, Roy, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here. Do you know what I'm talking about in front of Wells Cathedral? Oh, Oh, yes, that great west front. Spectacular view. Glorious facade. Jillian, when you look at a facade like that, how can you explain the splendor of that from five or 600 years ago? I just try and make them understand how the people in those days would have lived in little one-story wooden shacks and they'd arrive and see a site like that and it was like a preview to heaven. That's, That's really what would, it was. Yes. Come out of your hovel and once a week you can get a little glimpse of what heaven's going to be like yes. and yeah. uh, you step through that door. Roy, what else would you add to the prep before stepping into that cathedral in Wells? Well, well really to echo what Gillian was saying, to give them a context of what it must have been like for the medieval peasant to see that for the first time and because normally they wouldn't be allowed inside. Hmm. Ordinary presents, they would worship in their local churches. And also realising that the whole facade would have been highly painted, highly decorated, as most of the church was. Mm-hmm. We think of that as Gothic as just stony white. But that's a product no. of Victorian times. It really Isn't is. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. They just wanted to whitewash it, but we need to be able to find a way to go back in time. And when you think about the centrality of the church in medieval Europe and Britain... The community was really built around it. The bell tower told the hours. It told us when to celebrate. Yeah, when to... people didn't have watches, did they? So it, no. was, it defined their day. Some cities are homes of a cathedral. In fact, that is the term of a city, right? And the seat of a bishop 
or it can be appointed by the monarch. For example, I live in Bright- near Brighton and Hove, mm-hmm. and they don't have a cathedral there, but they are a city because the Queen decided in the year 2000 it could be a city. Yeah, Increasingly, a lot of larger towns are being given the status of a city um, because it allows them greater autonomy and uh, money and all sorts of Within things. the church or within the government? No, no, no within government. local government. Yeah. So that's, it's a political definition. Yes, yeah, mm. social and political but, but there's, definition. But, but I understand uh, traditionally or historically a city is... Had a, to be the seat a, of a the bishop. The seat of a bishop. Mm, and the centre of a diocese. So it's a political uh, unit for the church, basically. Yes, the that's right, to administer the the churches and the parishes in that Because in that Wells, the cathedral we were just talking about, happens to be the smallest, yeah. was the smallest city in mm-hmm. England, yeah. and it has this glorious cathedral because it was an important administrative centre of the church. And it's not yeah. alone because you've got St. David's in Wales and also Lincoln in Lincolnshire. So, That's also a very small city as well. As you're traveling around in England, you will stumble upon a lot of cathedrals, whether you like it or not. They're the big building on the main square. They're free to go in generally, and they're just glorious. Mm. Uh, What are some tips for appreciating a cathedral as you're traveling? They all have resident guides, and if you really want to appreciate a cathedral, you just go with one of the resident guides in the cathedral. And they speak English. And they do. And they Which I love about traveling in England. They speak the Queen's English. And And they're often, generally, volunteers who do it for the the passion, for the interest, for the love of the building. Mm. And that always comes out. um, I love that about English churches. You go into a cathedral and there are people with their sashes or their banners or their little name tags. And they are Mm. docents or volunteer guides or whatever you want to call them. And for the tourist, a lot of people are shy. They don't want to be a problem no, you're going to make their day if you just ask them questions oh. and let oh. them do their work. Yeah, You'll yeah. get a private tour. Absolutely. You'll get your own charming expert literally taking you by the arm and walking you through the whole cathedral, giving you a private tour. Mm-hmm. And that's the, the great delight. I love it. Now, in the church, there's so much to enjoy. You've got tombs that'll give you an indication of where the money came from a long time ago. Mm-hmm. In the Cotswolds, what kind of tombs would you see? The bale tombs, the woolen bale-shaped tombs. From the wool merchants. Wool merchants. Yeah. And I suppose in the South Coast you'd find uh, captains, sea captains' tombs. Mm-hmm. In, in some of the churches, places like Bath, of course, they had a long connection with the Royal Navy and many of the tombs and memorials there uh, connected with the Royal Navy and sea captains. Now, there are some architectural terms that are just helpful to understand if you're going to really appreciate the, the cathedrals. What's the basics, Roy, that you should know from an architectural point understand of view? Understand what Gothic architecture is. Mm-hmm. Understand how Gothic was used and exploited, built in, in England, um, because although you find it all across Europe, it has a different sort of process and a v- evolution in England. Understand what early English decorated and perpendicular architecture m- uh, means, mm-hmm. the periods that they cover, the developments of that architecture, because it'll give you a much greater understanding the way that these enormous buildings were built over quite large periods of time. So bone up on the basic architecture. There's Saxon, that would be the crude, Mm -hmm. simple, dark age stuff. There's the Norman, which in Europe would be called Romanesque. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll see some... Know the difference between the two. Yeah, and and then um, within Gothic, you've got uh, the perpendicular, which would be the sort of final flowering of Gothic before uh, what the Renaissance would come on. And you'll see a lot of that perpendicular in... uh, in Cambridge, I think you see... And although you do and see King's Romanesque Club. Norman elements in some of the churches, the vast majority were swept away, so the vast majority of English medieval cathedrals are of that Gothic period. Except for Durham. Durham Except for Cathedral Durham. is wonderful. And why was it swept away? Because it was the new, exciting, sexy architecture. Okay, so they just would purge the churches of the old decor because there's a new yeah. style. 
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jillian Chadwick and Roy Nichols about English cathedrals. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Heidi's calling from San Diego. Hi, Heidi. Thanks for the call. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my call. My husband and I have visited England numerous times with our children. About two years ago, we visited um, friends near Winchester, and we visited the wonderful historic cathedral there. Um, One thing I've been learning about cathedrals in England as we travel is that they aren't just houses of worship, but historic and cultural centers. And so many famous Britons are buried in the cathedral. Jane Austen is buried at Winchester, which I didn't know before we went, so that was a fun surprise. And then along with regular worship services, the cathedrals host concerts and cultural events and activist meetings. At one cathedral we visited, uh, we were looking at the bulletin board in the back, and there were all kinds of events taking place, like a handle concert and a meeting to discuss the plight of refugees. So whether it's a large, famous cathedral or a smaller village church, we always are enlightened by a visit to the local house of worship. You know, Heidi, I think that is a very good tip. And I, as you're thinking about that out loud, I, I was just remembering when I'm in a church in England, I love to take advantage of the fact that I understand the language and spend a few minutes in the lobby just reading what's going on with that community. Uh, there is refugees through housing. There's uh, the Quilters Club on Tuesday nights that says we welcome guests to help out. I mean, that's in uh, Stone the Wall. They've got an actual Quilters Club that's Tuesday nights. And if you happen to be there on Tuesday, you could come in for tea and cookies and, and help out with the quilting. Uh, you've got a list of rectors or pastors that goes back 800 years mm-hmm. without a stop, and you can kind of trace that. There's so much you can read into the material there. And as you mentioned, you've got cultural events, activist meetings, and of course, even songs. Yeah. Uh, Jillian, really, to see a go to a church during an even song is a chance to see it in action. I think that's the best way to appreciate a church or a cathedral because yeah. you sit there in that marvelous architecture listening to the choir yeah. and it just sends shivers up your spine. And it's free. Yes, it's free. <laughs> I mean, if you yes. kind of don't want to pay $10 to see St. Paul's, you can go to the even song. Yeah. They scoot you out after the service so you can't sightsee after mm. the service is over. But yeah. every church in uh, Britain whether they charge or not for tourists, is free for Evensong. Yes. And it really, it's not that tough to get a spot for Evensong. No. And a lot of times you get to sit right there in the choir, these mm-hmm. beautifully carved stalls in the very center of the church. Yeah. Roy, what's an Evensong tip that you would have? Be early. Be um, early, yeah. Because to sit in the choir itself, certainly the more popular ones, if you're going to York Minster, for instance, mm-hmm. you're not the only person that's likely to go along to Evensong, so be there sort of 15, 20 minutes before everybody else, and you will get a prime seat. So there's the, the core of the church. It's like if a church is a huge, vast, windy, stony yeah. structure, there's a cozy little beautifully carved central part where mm. they can have the intimacy, yeah. and that's where the services would be. Yes, between the nave and the high altar. Yeah. And you feel like you're going into Oz there more. I mean, it, sometimes it's not even open during the, the regular public days. And, and, and that, that sense of um, specialness really was created quite deliberately because the vast majority of people wouldn't be allowed beyond the screen that separated the right. nave from the choir. And it would only be the priest that would go into that area. Do the religious heavy lifting back there. That sort of thing. But everybody's welcome during the Evensong. Heidi, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks Take for having care. Me. Dino's calling from Woodenville in Washington. Hi, Dino. Hello. What's your uh, memory of uh, touring churches in Britain? Well, uh, we had taken a, a drive around Britain, and we had stopped in York, and we were looking in the cathedral there, looking at the tombs along the aisles on the inside, and one of the volunteers told me to look way up high towards the ceiling of the church, and there were a row of relief carvings along there uh, of all kinds of figures, but he was pointing one out, which that was kind of odd to have in a cathedral, which was a couple of monkeys that looked... Mm-hmm. They were happy, but they were rudely posed, 
and he got a big laugh out of it. I mean, it was pretty odd to see it there. It was fun. But why would that be inside the cathedral? Jillian, why would there be rudely posed monkeys carved into the stones of a cathedral column? I know that there's the monkey window. I don't remember the carvings, and it's something to do with the Glaziers Guild, isn't it? And there's We're symbol. talking the York Minster? York Minster, yeah. Well, but anywhere in Gothic architecture, you'll find that the stonemasons get to have a little fun here oh, yes. and there by carving goofy things into the capitals. Uh, yeah, there's, there's the famous Lincoln Imp, carving of an imp right high up on the roof of the cathedral in the city of Lincoln. You know, it's just human beings that spend mm. their lives carrying stones and carving them for to build these churches for generations upon generation and 800 years ago they like to vent and be characters and goofy yeah. and sometimes a little bit uh, well they'll even carve you can uh, it's said that you can identify some of the clergy from the cathedral carved by the masons during the winter time when they couldn't work on the main building itself so they would spend the winter carving the figures and the bosses and all the other things with what they really think about them maybe what too. they really think about them yeah and also in the choir where you're supposed to be sitting sometimes you have to be standing in the little area where you lean against yeah, where you put your, the, where yeah. you put your your butt mm. is that's sort of less religious because you're sitting on it and that means they have the freedom to carve and have a little bit of disrespectful or just comical or a little bit of rude art. Yeah. And you see that in the house of God. And it just gives you a little glimpse of the humanity of society mm-hmm. 800 years ago. They're not all saints. No. All right. Dino, thanks for your, your comment about the rude monkeys in York. <laughs> well, thank you for the background. Take care. It is fun when you get to go into a cathedral and you see these. And also, I think we have to remember that early churches were dealing with pre-Christian sort of um, traditions yeah, and beliefs. Yeah, and you have to incorporate a little bit of that. So you've got some pagan creatures here yeah, and there. That, green man, yeah. That just yeah. helps uh, mm. new Christians embrace this new religion that's been put on these people who for centuries before were worshipping in a pagan style. Yeah, I mean, that veneer of Christianity was wafer thin for hundreds of years. So we're talking about cathedrals in England. And just if you were going to think of the five or six big cathedrals to see, the cathedral cities, which one should we keep in mind? Canterbury, I think you have to start with because it's the headquarters of the church in this country. And it's a beautiful place to tour with plenty of docents and guides inside. What's another one? Salisbury. Salisbury, Salisbury, Mm -hmm. with a copy of the Magna Carta there. Exactly, and the tallest spire in England. Mm -hmm. Tallest spire in England in Salisbury. Another one? Durham. Durham, the great Norman cathedral, Mm. the best example of uh, Romanesque, I think, in Britain. And it's way up there in the north, quite striking. Yes. I love that. The location as well is stunning. I love that spot. Yeah, built on a hilltop, almost like a fort. Yes. We've talked about York and the Minster. What does Minster mean? We hear that word Minster. It's a center of teaching, Basically, yeah. So the York Minster would be a very important church. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's four great churches. I'd say Winchester. In Winchester. Mm -hmm. And you can do those big five ones, but I really, and and Gillian and I were talking, really plumb for some of the less well-known ones. What would they be? Well, the two that I particularly love are Ely in Lincolnshire Mm -hmm. and Norwich in Norfolk. Two Hmm. beautiful cathedrals that aren't visited by many people from outside the island. That's fantastic. Our guests, Gillian Chadwick and Roy Nichols, are tour guides and English history experts. They're providing us with a close-up view right now on Travel with Rick Steves of the many impressive Gothic cathedrals and churches you can visit all across England. When you find a cathedral that's lit from the inside, I think Lincoln's Cathedral is that way, in Bath also, yeah. and you go there at twilight or something, and the light is coming from inside of the church. It really is like a lantern. It really is. It's known as the Lantern of the West, the Bath Church. The Bath Church. It's actually nicknamed the Lantern. Yes. 
sometimes they're like a reliquary is a jewel box that holds something precious, mm-hmm. right? And a cathedral itself can be designed like a reliquary. Definitely. Like. Well, they, they were meant to act as a beacon for the faithful, to draw people to them. And so they would often build like Ely is built on a, a mound in a very, very flat, what is mm-hmm. generally a flat countryside, so people can see it from miles away. And in medieval times, you would have seen York Minster from miles and miles away. Mm, that's beautiful. And then the bells were important too. Back when there was no formal timekeeping, yeah. the, the monks would keep the time and they'd ring the bells at York Minster. You can actually, I've seen the bell ringer go in there. And the bells are so big that he gets that bell going and he actually hangs under the rope. He does this to entertain the tourist, I yeah. think. And the bell lifts him six mm. or seven feet into the, into the air. <laughs> as he's ringing those bells and they're just peeling all around you. I like that moment in, in some towns where the bells start to ring and you yeah. realize they've been ringing for centuries. Yeah. With my little village in Dorset, Thursday night is bell ringing practice night. And so they start at seven o'clock and they practice for an hour and a half or something like that. And throughout the year they practice. And this is not a bell choir. It's actually ringing the various yeah. bells to do mm. a tune. People are often surprised. They think that it's actually a recording, and then you say, no, these are really people ringing these bells. And they're pulling different bells for different tunes. Yeah, and they're absolutely stunned that we still do that. And they're all drawn from the local area, from the village itself, and there's a bell captain, and depending on the peal of bells that they have... There'll be a, a variety of numbers, and they'll ring special bells, the trebles, and all of those. So it's, it's good it's, exercise as well. Oh yeah, mm, it's hard work. Quite a science. Quite a science. So there's plenty of ways for a traveler to experience these cathedrals, along with worshiping on Sunday. You go to an even song almost any any day of the week, but be careful that the even song is sung rather than said. Yeah. Mm. Also, we've been talking about the great churches. What's a particularly um, delightful little church that you've encountered in your travels? There are so many of them oh. all over the country. It is one of my favourite things about England. Yeah. Every little village has got a church that's probably been there for 900 years. You know, the one in the Cotswolds in Stanway where the shepherds have wound the chains around the backs of the seats. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and you can see the chain marks in the from wood. From the shepherd's dog. From the shepherd's yeah. dog. Actually yeah. wearing a groove yep. in the little uh, wooden uh, pinnacle of the chair there. Yeah. And you think... 600 years ago, a shepherd came here every Sunday with his yeah. dog. Yeah, There's, a, there's a wonderful book by Simon Jenkins called The Thousand Best English Churches. And as Gillian pointed out, there are thousands of them. Mm. Thousand best. best. Yeah. Not one or ten right. or a hundred. Thousand, thousand best that churches. That are exceptionally yeah. beautiful English, churches. English churches. Of all of those, what, what little one would you would you? Well, enjoy? I live down in Dorset, and I'm going to plumb for the beautiful church in Beer Regis, a village not too far from Dorchester, which has got the most beautifully carved wooden ceiling. One of the sons of the village was John Morton, who was Chancellor to uh, Henry VII. Ah. And he endowed the church at his death, and they've got this most beautifully carved wooden ceiling with these incredibly painted angels that look so lifelike as if they're going to take wing at any moment. And have survived for generations. Have survived for 500 years. 500 years. And you can step in there and enjoy yeah. it without a guard. Just, yeah, it's there. and it's frequently just... that little church, there's nobody there. It's a beautiful thing. Gillian mm. Chadwick, Roy Nichols, thank you so much for giving us a tour of another of the many wonderful dimensions of England. Thank, thank you. you.
Its comfort foods include cabbage and cucumbers, sausage and dumplings, ravioli, and pilaf. We'll whet your appetite with the culinary traditions of Slovenia. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. You can expect to eat really well when you visit the compact country of Slovenia. With a history on the crossroads of empires, its two million citizens enjoy a mix of culinary traditions from its Mediterranean and Slavic neighbors, from across the Alps, and even from the Ottoman Turks. To help you find the best of what Slovenia can put on your plate, we're joined now by tour guide Marjan Kreskovic. He lives in the capital city, Ljubljana, and Tina Hiti lives in the scenic Lake Bled Resort region. They're here to take your calls about the foods of Slovenia at 877-333-7425. Tina, how do you explain to people that Slovenia really has one of the most diverse cuisines in Europe? We just have it all because of the diversity and the vicinity of the borders to our country, and it's a big mix, so we cannot really talk about what's the traditional Slovenian food mm. because it goes from region to region. It's different, you know. There's Austrian influence, there's Mediterranean influence, there's Hungarian influence, there's Balkan influence, so it's all a big it's mix. It's a melting pot. Yeah. It's a literal yes. melting pot. Yes. Yeah. So, Marianne, we'll go to a nice restaurant, and we're going to have uh, several courses. How might we get a little dose of Germany, of Hungary, of Ottoman, and of Italy? It depends definitely on the area of Slovenia where you go, because uh, it's such a small place. You can drive across in one or two hours. From one village to the next, the recipes vary widely the ingredients, the crops that are being grown, because it's a meeting place of geographical, geological features providing all the base for okay, this wonderful Okay, let's be in the capital city, mm-hmm. Ljubljana, and we'll go to a, a great restaurant and we'll try several courses. What might be some Italian-influenced food we'd see on the menu? Um, there's quite a bit of pasta, fish, salads, light Mediterranean dishes. There's uh, fabulous olive, uh, oil. olive oil grown down mm-hmm. on the coast. She's one of the northernmost um, olive oil growing regions producing hmm. top quality. And let's say uh, my travel partner's in the mood for something a little more Germanic, a little more dumpling. Oh, we're very proud, uh, definitely, of a variety of different dumplings, of our carniolian sausages and... Um, Buckwheat, mush, lots of pork grinds, sauerkraut. Sauerkraut um, yes, in Slovenia. Definitely. Oh, mm-hmm. yes, it's a big deal. Everybody yes. has their secret recipe on how to and make it perfect. And Tina, you've got more Eastern influence as well. How might mm-hmm. we get a little flavor of the, the Ottomans? Well, I would say with the grilled meats, with a lot of the eggplant spreads that we use instead of ketchup. Um, then we have a lot of pitas. Uh, burek, phyllo dough pastries oh, that you can that get is, in our country yeah. as well. Nice. And that would be definitely the, I would say, the Eastern influence. This is Travel with yeah. Rick Steves. We're talking with Marjan Kriskovic and Tina Hiti about Slovenian cuisine. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Ken is calling in from Rome in Italy. You're hey. actually in Hello. Rome, Ken? I am. I just moved from near Vancouver, Canada to Rome to be a tour guide, actually. All right. Do you have any thoughts or uh, comments for our guides about Slovenian cuisine? Yeah, I mean, uh, a quick anecdote is my girlfriend and I traveled there last year and went to the Lake Bled uh, region. And unfortunately, she got a little bit sick and we were staying at uh, a recommended kind of uh, agriturismo, I guess you could call it, if it was Italy. And their solution was some homemade... Uh, raspberry brandy. Of course. And it was, uh, of course. Uh, both, both Marianne and, and Dina go, well, yeah. I mean, homemade <laughs> raspberry brandy if you're not feeling well. Lots of antioxidants. Yeah. <laughs> and they were kind enough, actually, after our trip, I emailed them and they sent me picture by picture, step by step instructions so that we could make it ourselves at home. 
Nice. And did it help? Was it a, a nice remedy? Oh, of course it was, yes. And then the next day, finding out that they were very proud of their honey brandy as well. Honey is a big deal throughout the yes. Slavic world, I think. Yeah. It's considered medicinal. Everything is medicinal. <laughs> you go to a market from Slovenia all the way to Russia, and you'll yeah. find people with their honey that has different medicinal mm-hmm. qualities, and they want you to try this and try that, and yeah. people take it quite seriously. And we like to say with everything that grows, all the flowers, all the herbs, just dip them into schnapps. And you'll feel better. Will, yeah, you'll feel better <laughs> afterwards. Ken, what's another uh, cuisine memory you have of Slovenia? Uh, uh, the Big Hot Horse Burger in Ljubljana. <laughs> <laughs> the Big Hot Horse Burger? Marianne, what is oh, that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, that's been uh, pretty legendary for uh, almost a uh, couple of decades, I guess, now. It was in the middle of nowhere on the edge of a park, but the word got out so uh, very soon. And even if you were to go at 2 a.m. there, there would be long lines of people waiting to get their fix of horse burger. Now, <laughs> if you're not into horse meat... It's actually not horse meat. Lipizzaner stallion? Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully no, not. No, not Lipizzaner stallion. Not everybody <laughs> is into it. My, my wife would never, ever try horse meat, for instance. But if you're kind of out there not sure about it, Having it in the form of a burger is is a good start, and that actually might tilt you to the other side. Ken, describe your horse meat experience in Slovenia. <laughs> I think I was pleasantly surprised. For me, it was somewhere around the taste of bison, like a sweet beef. Uh-huh. But I think the most shocking thing of having it there is how enormous it is. And it's, uh, did they spice as, it up, or did it taste just gamey like uh, like a horse? No, it wasn't gamey at all. It was really, really good. I would absolutely have it again. And you go there and you can choose whatever you want as a topping, as I'm sure you well know. But in the end, uh, between two of us, we couldn't even finish it, and it ended up being a snack for later. Because the thing oh, having a little bit of horse meat plate. for a snack. That's, that makes me want to go to Slovenia right now. I was reading that there's actually wild bear in Slovenia, and it's one place where it's like legal to hunt and eat bears. Is that true? Bears? Um, it's actually one of the yeah. bears as yeah. well, but bears are protected. Oh, they are. Uh, but uh, since it's one of the bear-richest corners of Europe, every year to keep the population down, since they don't have any natural enemies, there's a certain number that can be shot by hunters associations and that can be in limited capacity uses for instance to put in bear salami in season and so on uh, so it's not something that you would normally set, find on the menus but occasionally yeah it can be another extra exotic delicacy that you will find ken did you have a language barrier when it came to eating in slovenia was it translated on the menu you know the thing is everyone there speaks so fluent english it's embarrassing because their english is probably better than ours going there so there's no language barrier, even in rural parts of the country where we rented a car and were very far out. There was never, ever a language barrier yeah. problem. And, and you slept at a countryside farm functioning as a B&B, like is popular in Italy, and a Slovenian agriturismo. Did you have a chance to eat there on the farm? We did, yeah. There was twice that we did it, once near Lake Bled and another time near the Slovenian Alps, the Julian Alps mm-hmm. there. And it was an amazing spread, like uh, it was more than a four-course meal, huge buffet and very reasonable price, mm. everything traditional, lots of meat, mm. stews, and a dessert. Probably fresh and, and seasonal and right off the farm. Ken, thanks for your call. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Best wishes in Rome. <laughs> Thank you very much. Keep traveling. You too. Tina Hiti and Marianne Kriskovich are taking us out to eat in Slovenia right now on Travel with Rick Steves. They're tour guides who specialize in taking visitors around Slovenia and neighboring Croatia from their home bases at Lake Bled and in the capital, Ljubljana. 
Lori's calling in from Woodland in California. Hey, Lori, thanks for the call. Hi. Hi, Rick. Hi, Tina. Hi, Marianne. Hi. My husband and my sister and I are planning to travel to Slovenia and Croatia in um, June, and we're wondering if you have any um, suggestions for must-have dishes or restaurants that we can't miss. In general or in the capital city of Ljubljana? Um, in the capital city, actually. Yeah, because most people are going to go to Ljubljana. I understand there's just a thriving foodie scene there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, yes. And you guys both live around there. What, what? If, if you're there in June, there's a wonderful event that takes place every weekend, and it's called the Open Kitchen. So try to be there Friday, and you'll enjoy it because there's a bunch of restaurants from all over the city, and they are offering their specialties over there, and you can just try so you des- can just describe go. the Open Kitchen more. So Open Kitchen is a concept where all the restaurants of the city come to this one square. They mm. do have a little stand, and they prepare their specialties. And they change every week. There's different specialty of the restaurant. And you can just go from stall to stall, drink oh. some wine, maybe a microbrew. And so leading restaurants would have yes, a little stall, yes. and they'd, they'd serve up whatever they're most proud of. Yes, and sometimes those leading restaurants, they can be quite expensive because they are really the top-notch restaurants, while over there on the open kitchen, they are not expensive at all. This would be Fridays and Saturdays? Fridays and Saturdays. Through yeah. the summer? Yeah, through the summer. usually starts kind of mid-June, and it goes mm-hmm. up until mid-October. What a great thing for the local yeah. food culture. Marianne, have you been there for this? Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever <laughs> I can. <laughs> what do you remember as a, a particularly uh, happy surprise when you're at the open kitchen in Lubin? Well, again, just the variety. If one is indecisive, doesn't know what, what mm-hmm. would be more appealing, it's all there. You can see it. You can smell it. You can so taste it. So give me a hard example. Prepared. You and I are walking down. What should I tr- Give me something that's specific. Oh, um, well, uh, wonderful local sausages from some of the more upscale restaurants. You might have like mini cooking demonstrations and see what all ingredients go in, how nice. to decorate. It's all prepared. Then you just can't wait to. Are there celebrity chefs in Ljubljana? Oh, definitely. Yes. It's a yes. very thriving cooking scene. Mm-hmm. Tina, what's a specific treat that you and I might find on an open kitchen Saturday? Maybe some frog legs. Frog legs in yes, Slovenia? Yeah, they are a specialty in Ljubljana. Seriously, it's yeah. not just sort yeah. of a French uh, no, gimmick, no, no, but it's no. the real thing. Yes, Frog the legs thing, in yeah. Slovenia. Yeah. Lori, there's some ideas for you. <laughs> it sounds wonderful. I can't wait to try them. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Marianne Kriskovic and Tina Hiti about Slovenian cuisine. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Denise is on the phone from Duluth in Minnesota. Denise, thanks for your call. Well, hi. We visited with my sister and brother-in-law and three of our many kids, so we had a group and rented a house up in the hills outside Ljubljana in Rakikna. I think I'm saying that right. So we just got online and did a rental and rented a car out of um, Venice where we flew into and had no trouble driving around and meandering down to Ljubljana several times and tasting food. But two thoughts is, well, three. One, I have a cold, so I'd love that recipe for the blackberry raspberry brandy <laughs> online. But also, while we were there, um, some distant cousins of my brother-in-law were just gracious and showed us around. We went to several wineries because one of the cousins grew grapes and, and supplied the wineries. And we were just overblown by how, with the quality of wine. And you don't find that in the U.S. So I don't know whether it's so good, and you hear so much about it from Italy, but the wineries really were as good, if not better, than the ones we visited 
in Italy. Um, you and know, in and uh, Denise, trip. describe the experience of going to a winery. Were you actually welcome to visit a winery and, and taste the wine? Oh, we were very welcome. Now, partly we had an inn because of the distant cousin that supplied grapes, so he seemed uh-huh. to know people. So they opened it up. We had a little private or semi-private tours mm. and some tasting and great food. And um, uh, luckily, the other cousin that was with us doesn't drink. So she uh, drove a van, and, and we could all imbibe. So nice <laughs> to have day. a designated so, driver so you can taste to your heart's content. To yeah, so we just spent the day doing that. And, but you can't find the wines in, in the U.S., no, so is, are they not imported? Why is that? What's the deal? Yeah. Our wineries are very small, so the maximum production is maybe 40,000 bottles a year per winery. And with 2 million Slovenes, those, are, those are gone. <laughs> we just have to drink it all ourselves or you come and visit. We'll give you plenty but just, yeah, our wineries are just too small. Yeah, we'll come yeah. back. The other thing is that the cousin had a, three boys. We had a great time. It was more personal um, and the boys took our adult son out mushroom hunting. Um, my son was pretty leery. We, we are, you know, just we do a lot of farming and, and gardening, but we haven't done mushrooms. So the the boys showed him what was good and what was bad, and we oh. added it to cooking for a picnic. So I don't know if that's real common oh, yes. in the area, but it was <laughs> yes. sure delicious. Talk about mushroom hunting or mushroom picking. Mushrooms are a big part of Slovenian cuisine when in season. And uh, just when the conditions are right towards the end of the summer, when you go, for instance, to the big farmer's market in Ljubljana, it's always fun just to kind of listen in to the different dialects of the vendors because nobody will tell you where they pick yes. them. Everybody has their secret locations. Mushroomer never it's tells. A, big, big a mushroomer yeah. never tells. So my job, try to figure yeah. out. So if you hear their dialect, you can go, I think yeah, you're you from this valley. Pretty, exactly. <laughs> and then my father is a big mushroomer. So I was when I was growing up as a kid, he would take me, and now he's taking my sons mushroom hunting. And I always remember how every day he would come back he would call my aunt and they would be like, so how many did you get? <laughs> and here we only talk about porcini because porcini is the mushroom. The rest is okay, but porcini is the mushroom. And it's like, oh, I got 70 today. And oh. she'd go, where? Where did and you go? Where did you go? Oh, I don't tell. <laughs> so yeah, it's a very big thing. This is what we always do, August, mm-hmm. September. And we like to go into nature. So it's not just the mushrooms that we hunt for, but we also go pick up flowers and we use them for teas, for yeah, herbal brandies. Dandelions you have in the, yes. in the salads. Dandelions mm-hmm. for the salads, dandelion mm-hmm. for the cough syrup, dandelion for, um, you can even put them into yes, egg and eat you. them as yeah. dessert. So honey, yes. dandelions, yeah. horses, bears, <laughs> <laughs> you've got Nature so is very kind to us. You <laughs> know? Nature is well, very nice. Yeah. We also bought some um, canned uh, sour pitted cherries mm-hmm. um, that were just delicious. In fact, we, we made a cherry pie, which was unusual for our cousins and, and tour guides. So they hadn't had cherry pie. The boys ate it up right away. They, they used the cherries, apparently, but it took me two days to hunt down tapioca, which I use. So <laughs> I think it was a language barrier or... Well, we don't have tapioca. You, you don't find it commonly. Denise, you had a great experience, it sounds like, oh, and it was a did. cultural exchange. You would share yeah. some, and you would learn some, and uh, you you had a local contact, which is huge, and think of the wonders of a new culture. People have spent all their life going to Germany and France and Spain, but now you've got Slovenia as an option. Well, and we've done that, and I'd go back to Slovenia um, above many other countries. I love it. Thanks for the call, Denise. Thank, Thank you. you.
This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Marjan Kriskovic and Tina Hiti about Slovenia. And Marjan and Tina, I can remember walking through the market in Ljubljana, and it's like the farmers filled up their wheelbarrows and wheeled them right onto the square. Is my memory correct? They're mm-hmm. like on wheels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're called Tsize. Uh, and the old tradition when the city was much smaller 100 years ago was what is today part of the city center used to be one of the oldest suburbs and that's just down the river and that's where these people would come and bring in their carts and uh, of course today these little tiny little gardens are protected and they still grow their vegetables so that's as locally produced with as low as carbon footprint as possible mm. Right there in the city center. So part of those vegetables, wow, not right all there. of them, unfortunately, that tradition is still kept And alive. the key would be to eat with the season and eat with the yes, local specialties. Yes, as local as possible. So you said these little patches are protected. Are they protected by the EU or by the Slovenian government? By the local Slovenian local government. Local government. Yes. And people are happy to do this. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. Preserving our heritage, yeah. our culture. This is just really quite inspirational. I know I know that uh, there are some literally protected mm-hmm. foods in Slovenia. What mm-hmm. would a few that would be actually protected for the national heritage Kranska klobasa, so the carniolian sausage. Okay. That's really yummy, very tasty. How is that unique? I think it's just richer, it's fuller in taste. And, you know, if you compare it with any of the bratwurst, I think, sorry to my German friends, but I think it's kind of plain. And ours just has that round-up taste. It's more personality. Yeah, more more personality. And uh, what about, uh, like, dumplings? Is that something that is... Um, yeah, like um, uh, Julikrofi and some others. So they're typical regional dumpling variations, which are also protected in their name, depending also on the filling, like with potatoes or other places with uh, meat, similar to ravioli. Potatoes are a huge thing there. in the cuisine, aren't they? Oh, yes. Well, Depends on the area. You have from brand dumplings, potato dumplings. Uh, mm-hmm. So the, the different variations in shape, size and fillings. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Marjan Kreskovic and Tina Hiti about Slovenian cuisine. Let's finish our little um, fantasy tour through all of this beautiful uh, taste streets of Slovenia just by talking about what you're going to have as soon as you get home. You're traveling around the United States right now. What do you miss? And when you get home, if your mother's going to sit you down at the table or if you're going to go to a restaurant, what are you going to have? I'm definitely looking forward to that beef soup with little noodles. <laughs> oh, it's every time I come back home from the U.S., it's that beef soup. Beef soup with, beef with, soup with, with little noodles. noodles. Oh, what's so it, good. What's it called in Slovenian? Govaya yucha. Govayuka. Govaya yucha. Oh, I'll, I'll so good. That. So good. And Marian. Same here. That's always the start of a Sunday meal uh, anywhere. It's so simple and with all the variety that we described, but it's things like that that really bring the, the smell and taste of home close. Uh, sounds yeah. great. Well, Tina and Marian, thank you so much for um, stoking our appetite as we dream about traveling in Slovenia. Prosim. Hvalerik. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff. Rick narrates detailed walking tours to many of Europe's most popular attractions. You'll find a link to Rick's Audio Europe travel app at ricksteves.com radio. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.